raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. In my state of Louisiana, fentanyl is the leading cause of death for Americans age 18 to 49 in this country. Fentanyl poisoning because it's allowed over the border. We have human trafficking and all the other terrible things. In the last three months, October, November, December alone, We've had more illegal crossings at the border than in any entire year during the Obama administration. The American people see this, they feel it acutely, they see all the terrible societal ills that come from this, and it must be addressed. So I've made this very clear, again, from the very beginning, when I it was handed the gavel, we needed clarity on what we're doing in Ukraine and how we'll have proper oversight of the spending of precious taxpayer dollars and the American citizens, and we needed a transformative change at the border. Thus far, we've gotten neither. Uh, the Senate has been MIA on this. The House passed H.R. 2 six months ago, more than six months ago. It's been sitting and collecting dust on Chuck Schumer's desk. I have told him personally, I've told the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, that these are our conditions because these are the conditions of the American people. And we are resolute on that. It is not the House's issue right now. The issue is with the White House and the Senate. And I implore them to do their job because the time is urgent and we do want to do the right thing here. With that, I'll... I'll he walks away off into the sunset on his steed, goes Speaker Johnson. But he's making the argument that a lot of people want to make. You can't just have unlimited funds for Ukraine. And how is there a conversation regarding Ukraine without a conversation for the border? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. Now, some people may not want a mixing of the southern border and Ukraine. And certainly, uh, people like uh, Senator Chris Murphy... They have gotten themselves uh, in a, in, a, in a bit of a of a lather on this subject that somehow everything those uh, wascally Republicans want is just downright dangerous. I don't, because it's fairly normal for there to be these emergency spending bills before Congress when we have insufficient funds for um, the operation of the border or for our foreign policy objectives. It's very different to say, on top of that funding, we are going to make major changes in law. And that's what Republicans are asking for. They are asking for very severe, very draconian immigration policy changes, policy What's draconian? What does that even mean? We know who's coming into the country. We say no to some people who are bad guys coming into the country. We want to stop fentanyl. What's draconian? What is, why is that your word choice? You mean having a border at all is draconian? By the way, definition, exceedingly harsh, very severe. What, what are you opposed to, Senator Murphy? 
By the way, there is no greater beta male in all of the Senate than Senator Murphy. That's saying a lot because Richard Blumenthal is also in the Senate. Uh, that's a guy who lied about his Vietnam service. What's draconian? An actual implementation of policy that allows us a better tomorrow? That we have policy that states that single adult males don't just enter the country, that protects children who are being trafficked to the country, and that protects those who live in the United States in these border towns and beyond, that doesn't waste money on policies that don't work, but rather engages in the investment in technology that does? Draconian, my butt! The only thing draconian, exceedingly harsh or very severe, is how people are being treated right now. All those citizens in those border towns, all those American citizens, how Border Patrol is being treated by not giving them the tools to do the damn job. You've got them engaged in so many humanitarian efforts. You don't have them engaged in actually stopping people. This is an unserious response from Chris Murphy. Your problem is they're going to tie Ukrainian funding with the border. Well, that's the problem that Vladimir Zelensky has. He's in the United States. And man, I'm telling you, he's, he's hitting again all the wrong notes. Let me be frank with you, France, if there's anyone inspired by unresolved issues on capital hill is just putin and his sick click they see the dreams come through when they see the the delays or some scandals and they see freedom to fall when the support of freedom fighters go down this isn't a conversation of support of freedom fighters this is a conversation of what kind of money we're talking about if there's anyone inspired by unresolved issues on Capitol Hill, it's just Putin and his sick click. We're not interested in paying for your retirement fund. I think we should pay for bullets and tanks. I know some people disagree with me. That's okay. We should pay for bullets and tanks. We're better off if we pay for bullets and tanks. I believe this. I can defend this. Retirement funds and, and being, uh, having unaccountable dollars, no transparency in how things are being spent. Well, that's a real problem for Americans. And you come to the United States and say that somehow because wanting to ensure that is support of, of Putin. That's, that is not a winning message. That doesn't work. That doesn't get people on your side. It doesn't get people to come your way. It's a radical position, but it's backed up and buoyed by Senator Chuck Schumer. If Republicans keep insisting on Donald Trump's border policies, then they will be at fault when a deal for Ukraine, Israel, and humanitarian aid to Gaza all fall apart. Republicans would be giving Vladimir Putin the best gift he could ask for. Democrats are serious about reaching reasonable bipartisan compromise to pass this package. The question is if Republicans are now willing to do the same. You're a twisted, twisted man. Now, Murphy said draconian and you said Trump, so is that it? 
You just don't want a Trump policy because after three years of utter failure, you don't want Americans to see that the Trump policies actually worked. That remain in Mexico was a worthwhile policy. That walls work. They work. Border Patrol says they work. The people who live in these border towns say they work. They don't stop people. They slow them down so they can be apprehended. How do you stop people when you've got the Biden administration so desperately welcoming them in? And that is happening. So just for the sake of clarity, there is no policy that we issue out, that we put forward, that says it ain't worth coming. You have single male Chinese nationals coming into the country and we let them in. Are we nuts? That should be an immediate deportation, immediately on a plane and flown back under escort of a couple of F-35s landing, dropping them off and then taking off again. Let China figure out what to do. You just want to go to a more friendly country and walk them to the gate? Sure. You want to fly them to Japan and then just put them on a, on a, on a boat? All right, look, we, we can do it in a multiplicity of ways, but they can't stay. And anybody who thinks that single men can stay are nuts, whether they're from China or whether they're from Nicaragua. Single adult men cannot stay. That's insane. Go back and fight for your country. That has to be a standard. But never mind that is just one of many, many policies. Schumer doesn't want Trump policies being moved forward. Who's being political if you're the one bringing up Trump? You unserious child. Speaker Johnson is clear. Funding for Ukraine goes along with funding for the border. Joe Biden wanted $105 billion for a series of things. $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and I think it was $14 billion for the border. That's right, $60 billion for Ukraine, $14 billion for the border. We can discuss that part of it later. If you want the dollars, you have to accept the fact that you don't control the House. Republicans are to blame. We all lose. The deal's in front of you. Now you, Chuck Schumer, have got to be a good American and just deal with it. What is this idea? That Republicans have to acquiesce on every damn thing in order to be seen as reasonable. Screw Chuck Schumer and these progressives who have no interest in supporting a border and have more interest in supporting Ukraine. I didn't say we shouldn't support Ukraine, but the idea that Ukraine comes before the southern border is for many Americans a non-starter. And here you are stating it. And then you bring Zelensky here to tell you that's the way it should be. Mistake on messaging after mistake on messaging. The message to Chuck Schumer and to Chris Murphy is screw you. We're doing this and then we'll do that. But we're doing this. Well, why isn't Israel funding tied into that? I don't know. Because Republicans won the House and you can kiss off. We're taking care of the border. Then we'll take care of Ukraine. I think it's interesting that I, I, this is this is me saying it, and you can tell me whether you agree or disagree. Uh, I think from the Republicans, there's a little bit of a a turn on the Ukraine thing. They'll send the money. I, I think I think for some, there's still a 
Big litmus test there, and I think that's a, that's a very, very large mistake. Do this, we'll do that. Do this, and we'll do that. Which is, I think, a little different than it was, let's say, six months ago. And Democrats are still not willing to do this. As we discuss more and more about Border Week, which we are doing this week, presented by Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org, um, you will hear from people who deal with the policy side all the time, who are, are doing things in Texas and dealing with the legislative realities, and people will not come to the table. Something you and I see as so basic, it is a basic idea. Let's start with policy that actually works. What we have now doesn't. The ability to come into the country doesn't work legally. The ability to work in the country legally doesn't work. The actual physical structures and systems don't work. The technology piece is nowhere near there. We can't agree to get rid of trees. There are certain trees that grow at certain parts of the southern border. And if you got rid of the trees, it would be easier to get to people who are trying to sneak across. We can't agree to get rid of the tree. It's not like it's, it's it, it, without the tree, the whole ecosystem stops. But if you're worried about the ecosystem, not worried about the ecosystem of the nation, well, then you're weird. But the Democrats have told you they're just not there. They just don't care. They would rather scream draconian Republicans and Trump. They would rather engage that than actually doing something. I hope the Republicans stand firm, which is hilarious because they're Republicans. They don't do that. I hope I hope they stand firm. I'm a believer in funding Ukraine because I'm a believer in pushing back Putin. You and I, as I said, may disagree on that. But even I recognize and understand politics is real. You want that money. You got to do something about the border. Why are you so opposed? Why are you so upset? Why are you so bothered? Why are you making it political? It is American lives on the line and you want to make it about Trump. My God, Chuck Schumer, how awful are you? And the answer is uh, he's, he's really awful. Meanwhile, uh, the House is going to vote on whether or not to not only move uh, down the road of impeachment inquiry, but they're going to start talking about whether or not they're serious about impeachment. And I'm 50-50. You might see that in 2024. I got that story. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
Production for the Ford F-150 Lightning. That's the electric pickup. Cut in half. The demand isn't there. The truck itself, it's outstanding. I know this because I'm driving one. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. I have a deal with a, with a local Ford dealership, Andy Moore Ford, in Indianapolis. Great people. They sell everything. Right? And, and uh, they sell the, the, the electric stuff. And I try it. I, so I did the Mach-E, which is the Mustang. I don't know why they called them. Calling it a Mustang was a mistake. The car itself is very cool. It's really well done. It's really well appointed. Uh, calling it a Mustang, I, I don't get. It was cool. The F-150 Lightning thing is unbelievable. It is incredibly comfortable. It is, it is a joy to drive. A joy. And there's a market for electric. There just is no market for forced. And the market is smaller because of cost. And this can't be denied. As a matter of fact, some of the numbers that we saw in uh, the consumer price index, which shows that inflation hasn't gone anywhere. I'll get into that. I spoke with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis about this. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Hey, Tony Katz today. I don't know if I said hello. I forget sometimes. Um, there are the, um, the used car numbers are up, and there's a reason. And so the, the electric car makers have got to start providing deals. But they also have to deal with the reality that the market isn't there. It's not that it's a bad product, although some people may not be into the product. It's that on the pricing, it's not there. And so where the expectation levels were, that's, uh, that's gone down. I'm telling you I drive the car. It's nuts. It's so good. Now, would I feel that way in a regular F-150? Maybe. Maybe. Right? So, yeah, so right now it is, it is the 1996 Ford Bronco next to the 2023 uh, Ford Lightning. It's a, it's a weird house that I've got at the, at, at the moment. Uh, the, one of the other big stories is, of course, that Jack Smith is trying to cut through the middleman. He's going right to the Supreme Court to find out whether or not Donald Trump gets to claim he's immune from federal prosecution. This is Trump's argument. This is the case that's in D.C., brought forth by the special counsel, Jack Smith, that U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin ruled that Trump cannot be shielded from criminal prosecution after his presidency for alleged actions that occurred while he was in the White House, right? So that's the reporting. Trump's saying, you can't come at me for what I did in the White House. Yeah, you, you have no jurisdiction over this. The judge said, yes, uh, the special counsel can. So Trump appealed it to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Jack Smith said, what are we doing here? Wasting time? Goes right to the Supreme Court and says, it's going to come to you anyway. Why are we wasting time? Trump just wants to delay. You decide. And the Supreme Court said, okay, we'll decide. Uh, President Trump, your team, you have until December 20th, 4 p.m., Get us all your information. Now, I have no idea how the court's going to rule. If, if I was a betting man, just, and, and by the way, this is not based on anything. It's not. Now, no inside knowledge. Nobody's saying here's how the court feels about these things. I would make the argument that the court would say, well, of course a prosecution can be brought. 
a trial can be can be brought forward. I don't I, I don't see how it can't be that way. Um, but that's what I think they're going to say. But I haven't seen what it is that the Trump team is going to put forward. I haven't seen how how it's going to be responded to. I don't have anything yet as as a precedent. So my gut says X, but I I'm more than willing to wait for everything. I think it's interesting that that Smith went right to the SCOTUS. I think it's interesting. I'm actually glad SCOTUS said yes. I wonder if this bothers the Trump team. Like they wanted to utilize the appeals process as a way of maybe dragging things out. Because this trial is happening in March. And love Trump, hate Trump, I don't care. This is election interference from the word go. Of course it is. And to say otherwise is nonsense hooey. This is election interference. All of these cases are. We will see. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I'm going to get into everything going on with Harvard, with MIT, with the University of Pennsylvania, and specifically with Harvard, the defending of Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. This is brutal. Harvard has come out to say, to say quite clearly, we know she's a fraud on the academics, and we know that, that she's a DEI hire. We're cool with that. As a matter of fact, if you bother us about it, we will call you racist a second time to uh, to uh, paraphrase the people there at Monty Python. You see that, uh, President Gay? That's how you cite a source. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. I feel good about that one. Can I get a little something? No? Yeah. Thank you, Producer Jason. Bless the good man. Blessings to you. By the way, where are you? Pl- you got to start telling me. Where you're playing. So so producer Jason uh, does a lot of uh, singing and guitar playing. He does a little cowboy thing. The ladies go nuts. <laughs> and and, he, and you like you play around the Indianapolis area, but people may want to have you in other spots. You got to let us know where you're playing. So on Fridays from now on, you got to have a list for me so I can read off where you're going to be over the weekend. That, that won't work this week because I'm playing Thursday and not the weekend. Well, then we'll do it Thursday this week. Just help a brother. I'm just trying to help you. I'm not going to be here Thursday, Tony. So I don't even know what's apart. happening anymore. Just, just send the damn schedule. <laughs> I'll be at Mashcraft and, Thursday night. How about that? There we go. No, you'll send it. You can't tell me. <laughs> Nobody knows what that is. Good Lord. Uh, I'll get to the, to the uh, President Claudine Gay plagiarism stuff. This is stunning. It, it, the, the full display, it as obvious and clear as day, I, I have rarely seen in, in today's America every side of the political right and many pieces of the political left all in agreement of what the hell am I looking at? 
You can't actually be serious. And and yes, they are. And if you want to know why DEI is hateful, why DEI is dangerous, if you want to know why DEI destroys minds, and DEI is not about making lives better, but about keeping other people down, this Harvard story is it. And we'll get into it. But the uh, Consumer Price Index came out today. The numbers came out today. And they do not show that inflation has gone anywhere. What they show is that inflation remains. It's here. It did not drop. It shows that when you take away food and energy, which they, you know, engage as volatile or they claim as volatile, and you get to core uh, consumer price index, it's 4%. The target rate, as Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis points out, is 2%. So you are 100 times, if you will, higher than the target rate of inflation. And I spoke to to Dr. Matt Will. I'll share you the full uh, interview in in a, in a little bit. But one of the places that was really problematic was in vehicles, and especially when you take a look at the number in used vehicles, because this is about credit. So I'm looking at used cars and trucks up 1.6, just to give everybody an idea. From June, July, August, September, and October, it had gone down 0. 0.5, 1.3, 1.2, 2.5, 0. 0.8. It had gone down five months in a row, if you will. It showed a negative. The last time it was up was May. It was four, up 4.4. Now it's up uh, 1.6. But I also noticed that new vehicle sales are down 0.1. So used cars went up, but new vehicles went down. This is part of the credit crunch conversation? Yes, it's cre- that's exactly it. It's part of the credit crunch situation and also demand. If people aren't making as much money, and we know that wages are not keeping up with inflation. We know that to be a fact. The government keeps reporting it. If your wages are not keeping up with inflation and you need a car, you're going to buy a used car, not a new car. So the demand for used cars is telling us the household budget is not in as good a shape as it was. And also, you don't have, as, have to have as good a credit to buy a used car as you do a new car. Let me talk about where, where the household credit is for, for a moment. Stepping away from the report, this was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. The math for buying a home no longer works. And the chart is from CBRE, uh, Gina Heeb with the story, H-E-E-B, Gina Heeb with the story over there at, uh, at the Wall Street Journal. That an average monthly lease payment, right? You're, you're buying a, or you're renting a, an apartment, renting a house, is $2,184 a month. When in uh, the first quarter of 2021, it was $1,780. So you, you've gone up nearly three to $400 in, in making a payment on a, on a, on a lease, on, on, a, on a, an apartment. If in the third quarter of 2021, or fourth quarter of 2021, you were paying $2,000 for a mortgage, average payment. Now you're paying $3,300. So this is, of course, the increase in interest rates that are, that are uh, affecting all of this. 
But this is massive to the idea of where people can spend their money and the the, the, the very concept of house poor. You know, but it's more, it's more it's more than inflation. Let me give you another piece of data. You're right. Interest rates cause increase in monthly payments. But what about closing costs? Closing costs were up 22% year over year. 22%. That equates to $5,900 more year over year in closing costs. These are the fact that the banks have to make their money somewhere. And they're not making money, as we saw in the housing or the mortgage, the banking crisis earlier this year. So it's tough to buy a home when you're $6,000 more out of pocket to buy a home. And you don't have it because your wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Now let's tie a bow on this. Give you two things here, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. The first is this short clip from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen saying that we're on a soft landing path. So do you, you've said you see a soft landing as the most likely outcome for the economy. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, in the sense that, um, to me, a soft landing is the economy continues to grow, the labor market remains strong, and inflation comes down. And I believe that's the path we're on. She believes we're on a path where the labor market remains strong, but the inflation comes down. That's going to be the soft landing. If you take a look at the CNBC Fed survey, they'll they'll tell you that people believe that the soft landing probability is up to 47%, up five points from October, and they think that the Fed will start cutting rates mid-year 2024. So I take a look at this Consumer Price Index report. I say the inflation is still here, but the people on Wall Street and Secretary Yellen are all telling me that everything is super fine and dandy, Dr. Will, and that we are going to have the soft landing. As a matter of fact, Janet Yellen is going to get herself one of those nice, comfy down pillows and rest you there in the reeds like your Moses. Well, all I can say is she is much better at predicting the future than me, although her track record is terrible. We can go back and look at that. I don't think we have the time, but it is terrible. She has a terrible track record for forecasting the future. I don't predict the future, but I do know this. All those Wall Street people you just mentioned that are saying soft landing, if you dig into their details of their analysis, they say the labor market is getting in worse condition. That contradicts what she just said. So I don't think it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be soft or hard, but I do know this. Her forecasting record is terrible. Talk to me about the idea of of the labor market. Uh, Why would there be a feeling that it's about to get worse? Well, because we saw this in the report that we, you and I analyzed just last week, that what we're seeing is that the job openings are decreasing. The unemployment rate is fluctuating because it has to do with participation rate. The great resignation is not being reversed yet. And that what we're starting to see is a slowdown in the economy, as we see in these numbers right now in the CPI for fuel. Slow down the economy, less people being hired, unemployment rate will go up. I heard in the same report you gave this morning that you played earlier this clip, same interview that the forecast is that we may hit over 4% unemployment sometime in the middle of next month or next year. Now, we have not paid much attention to unemployment rates. And the reason we haven't paid much attention to them is because they don't seem to be as much of an indicator as 
as things like producer price index and what we're warehousing, what we're actually manufacturing, whether that is up or down, uh, how people are seeing, uh, you know, the, 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 the future. They're being very, very wary. You're now telling me I should be paying attention to what that unemployment number is going to be? Yes, because we've seen a trend. We talked about this, I think it was on Thursday or Friday. There is now a trend that is coming. It, well, it's not coming. It's here. The trend is moving in the wrong direction. The number of people unemployed is, is you know, fluctuating. The number of people employed is not moving up as fast as it should be. The participation rate is not moving. We see this unemployment picture growing into next year. So the, if the labor force participation rate is not growing, you mean that more people are not getting into the workforce. They're saying, I may have lost my job. I might not be sure about my job, but that's just the way it is. And there are no other jobs to get. That's what you're arguing. There are no other jobs to get right now if you lose your job. No, no, there are plenty of jobs to get. There's 8.6 million openings right. at the moment. So I'm not what sure where you're at. People are saying, no, but people are saying they don't want to go into the workforce. And we, that's a whole long discussion about daycare, um, quality of life, standard of living, accepting. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that go into that. But people aren't going back into the workforce. They've resigned during the great you know, COVID thing. They're just not coming back to work. That is a fact. So the unemployment rate going up has nothing to do with the fact that we have 8.7 million jobs that they could fill. There aren't more people going back into the workforce. They're fine with what they've got. They're going to wait this whole thing out. That's a, is, is, is that a conversation about the value of the dollar not being enough, that going back to work isn't worth it? Or is that a cultural conversation about why should I have to work at all? It's a cultural conversation. And we're going to get into that cultural conversation uh, in a little bit. My conversation with Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. I've got more of that later, plus more conversations regarding the border. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz Today. small children raise a spoon to grandma who always took all the hungry cousins to mcdonald's for mcnuggets and the play play slide have something sweet in her honor come to mcdonald's and treat yourself to the grandma mcflurry today and participating mcdonald's for a limited time life is so much more than a diagnosis it's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy all hits no skips Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. As the great sage Doug Emhoff, husband of Vice President Kamala Harris, tells us the story of Hanukkah, which, as you know, is a story of hiding and shame because, after all, what else could it possibly be in 2023? Oh, no, no, I, can, I couldn't make it up. I couldn't make it up. Rabbi Doug has spoken, and he has spoken for all the Jews. <laughs> It's all of this, but put it right back. 
It's nuts. It's nutty what Doug Emhoff did. Let me let me take you through it. He he puts out on the on the Twitter X. Can I just say how many things start how many bad stories in America start? Well, he was on social media. Oh Lord. I mean, you might that has now replaced the well, uh, they took a naked picture of themselves. Oh Lord. It could never take nudes. Do not send nudes. It will never work out well. All you're doing is providing content for a website you can't find because it exists, to quote Letter Kenny on the dark web. Doug Emhoff puts out on Twitter X the story of Hanukkah, and it's a picture of him and Kamala Harris lighting a, a, a menorah. Which is so weird because she usually, when she's lighting candles, is celebrating Kwanzaa. The story of Hanukkah and the story of the Jewish people has always been one of hope and resistance and resilience, he says. In the Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were forced into hiding. No one thought they would survive or that the few drops of oil they had would last. But they survived and the oil kept burning. Now, look, I, I wasn't there. But we've been telling this story a good long time, and I'm here to tell you, that's not how it happened. Hanukkah is not a story of hiding. Hanukkah is a story of kicking a little ass and taking some names. Hanukkah, uh, the actual word uh, being dedication, talks about the rededication of the temple because the Jews were practicing their religion, hanging out, having a good time. The king was like, whatever. And then the king's son took over and said, oh, those Jews. And they you know, shook their fist. Ooh, you know, I assume, I assume they look like Liz McGill over at University of Pennsylvania, former president there. And, and, and uh, then said, you can't do this. And uh, the Jews were like, all right, let's fight. And then, uh, you know, they, they, they uh, get attacked by the Greek Syrian oppressors they uh fight back that's known as the maccabean result next thing you know uh you you've won and you're rededicating the temple and so they were going to light a, a menorah right but they didn't have much oil because there was a fight and somebody spilled it over it happens you know in a fight it's like when you're tussling and all of a sudden you broke grandma's vase uh boom that's what happened there was no oil there was a little bit left and they put it in and it didn't last for a day like it was supposed to it lasted for eight days and they were able to get new oil because you know they went to the store and so that's what happened. That's the story of Hanukkah. As told by Rabbi Tony, that's not a rabbi. That's the story of Hanukkah. Not what Doug Emhoff said, whatever he was talking about. He continues, during those eight days in hiding, they recited their prayers and continued their traditions. That's why Hanukkah means dedication. It was during those dark nights that the Maccabees dedicated themselves to maintaining hope and faith in the oil, each other, and their Judaism. In these dark times, I think of that story. In these dark times, I question where you got the story from, Doug. Because we were not in the same Hebrew school class. This is obvious. And I'm not saying there couldn't be different interpretations of the story. I am saying in no interpretation I have ever heard, ever, not claiming to be a scholar, 
No one has ever discussed the idea that Jews were in hiding. No one ever said Jews were in hiding, if only because they weren't in hiding. Doug Emhoff got so much heat for this tweet, he deleted it. He should have cited his sources. But it doesn't matter. You don't even have to cite him. He could still get a job at Harvard. This is the story of Dr. Claudine Gay and why it matters to you and your kids. That's coming up. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. In summation, Harvard University is okay with anti-Semitism, and Harvard University has admitted that Dr. Claudine Gay, president of the university, was a DEI hire, that her academic record is not worthy of being president, that her published papers are filled with not only citing errors, but outright plagiarism. And it doesn't matter. That is what the Ivy League, sorry, the ISIS League now has to offer. Not intellectual excellence or academic excellence. Not an intellectual pursuit. But rather, who will engage fealty Who will engage the most level of fealty to the lowest common denominator of bigotry? That is Harvard. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. That is the number. Let's, uh, Let's take a moment because I think some people might take offense to me saying that Dr. Claudine Gay, a black woman, got the job because she's a black woman and not because she has any skill set whatsoever. But that's what the facts show. So why in the world would you get angry with me for noting it? Oh, I expect to be called a racist. Oh, I expect to get yelled at. Oh, I expect to get calls. Oh my gosh, how dare you say that, Tony Katz? Harvard has been confronted with her intellectual uh, inaccuracies, her academic inaccuracies, I should say, her lack of intellectual heft, I should say. And you know what they said? We're fine. First, let's take a step back. Dr. Claudine Gay would not answer a basic question with any level of decency. Is it okay 
for people on a college campus, on the Harvard campus, to, to call for the genocide of Jews. Is, is, is that harassment? Well, it depends on the context. It depends on the context, does it? These people want Jews dead. These pro-Hamas freaks like Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Acacia Cortez and Andre Carson and Jamal Bowman. All of these college campus Marxist losers want Jews dead. And that's not a problem to you on your campus? The same campus that holds mandatory trainings to discuss how you must use proper pronouns or you uh, could be guilty of of hate and uh, maybe you'll be off campus. If you have an Adam's apple, I call you he. And if you don't like it, I don't care. But I'm not here to lie to myself or lie to you to fulfill some kind of weird fantasy you've got going on. Or to aid and abet your serious mental issue, considering gender dysphoria is listed in the DSM-5, the statistical manual for those who are members of the American Psychiatric Association. It's real and it's dangerous. And we should help people not buy in to their own delusions. If you have an Adam's apple, if you're a man, I'm calling you he or him. And your happiness is not my problem. Me not lying to myself. That's how I bring about my happiness. And I'm not changing it because of you. Now, Harvard thinks otherwise, but neither here nor there. At Harvard, you can call for genocide and they don't even think it's harassment. It's a very weird thing to say. And all these presidents... So fixated on the idea of free speech. Well, you're not having a free speech conversation now, are you? Because you don't believe in free speech on your campuses at all. Let's say there are still some Republicans at Harvard. Could they invite me to speak right now? I'm going to have a whole conversation about never, ever, ever lying when it comes to pronouns, no matter what. And I don't care what a person calls themselves. Do not lie. And do not lie to yourself because of what it does to the soul. Can I have that conversation? Can I have that conversation on your campus? Let me know. Invite me. And, I mean, I'll do it in one of the ISIS League schools. Yeah, by the way, they're not the Ivy Leagues. This is the ISIS League. Their support of Hamas is complete. Um, I'll, I'll do it uh, in, in any Midwest school. I'd be overjoyed to, by the way. You just got to pay the fee. But, yeah, I'd be overjoyed to do it. These people, they want to tell you that it all depends on context. Oh, we're so believers in free speech. Oh, it's not necessarily an issue. Oh, it really depends. When, of course, the answer is it's horrific. It's disgusting. If you're asking if people can gather in a town square and engage such rhetoric under the guise of the First Amendment, I would argue uh, with, with, I guess, levels of exception being small, yes, they can, because the federal government cannot create a law regarding speech. But a university that already creates so many laws regarding speech could have and chose not to. That's Harvard. Well, this brings in a lot of questions. Questions and pressure, and at the University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill uh, uh, has to resign. So does the chairman of the board, Scott Bach. 
And uh, she, oh, she's still going to be a, a professor, but won't be president of the university anymore. All gone. The attention then turns to Claudine Gay at Harvard. And the Harvard people state, yeah, we're not getting rid of Claudine Gay. Well, as they state that they're not going to get rid of Claudine Gay because she is such a, a valuable person and she, she internalizes the values of our university. As they write, the Harvard Corporation, as they write to reaffirm their support for President Gay's leadership of Harvard, they state, so many people have suffered tremendous damage and pain because of Hamas's brutal terrorist attack. And the university's initial statement should have been an immediate, direct, and unequivocal condemnation. Calls for genocide are despicable and contrary to fundamental human values. President Gay has now apologized for how she handled her congressional testimony and is committed to redoubling the university's fight against anti-Semitism. She was asked a basic question and spent the next hour telling you that uh, it's totally fine to say these things on campus. And it took an immense amount of pressure to get her to engage some kind of apology where the real issue was the combative nature of the hearing. Madness. Well, as they're letting her off the hook for this, you then start to understand that there's another problem with Claudine Gay. It's that Claudine Gay is a terrible academic. As a matter of fact, she's not an academic. As the Washington Free Beacon explained... This is definitely plagiarism, reads the headline. Harvard University President Claudine Gay copied entire paragraphs from others' academic work and claimed them as her own. It started with a citing here. It started with a quote there. Now it is full passages lifted. Full Passages. Multiple scholars looking at four papers published between 1993 and 2017, including her doctoral dissertation, paraphrasing of or quoting of nearly 20 authors, including two of her colleagues in the Harvard University Department of Government without proper attribution. Now, it should be noted that students today are released from the university for not following these kinds of guidelines. They have rules about how one must cite their sources. And people do not get to graduate. They do not get to remain at Harvard University when they do not follow these rules. It is without question A series of scholars analyzing these cases of plagiarism stated that Gay had violated a core principle of academic integrity as well as Harvard's own anti-plagiarism policies, which state that, and I'm quoting, it's not enough to change a few words here and there. There is literally a side-by-side analysis of paragraphs of the stolen work, not just from people like Dr. Carol Swain, but a whole host of people. How does Harvard respond? 
in the same letter where they say she's fighting against anti-Semitism, if you believe that, quote, with regard to President Gay's academic writings, the university became aware in late October of allegations regarding three articles. At President Gay's request, the fellows promptly initiated an independent review by distinguished political scientists and conducted a review of her published work. On December 9th, the fellows reviewed the results, which revealed a few instances of inadequate citation. While the analysis found no violation of Harvard standards for research misconduct, President Gay is proactively requesting four corrections in two articles to insert citations and quotation marks that were omitted from the original publication. Translation, having a black female president is more important than whether or not she did the job properly in trying to become, in becoming a doctoral student or in getting her career at Harvard. It matters more to us that we check boxes than we have somebody who's competent. Thank you. Good night. That's what Harvard has said today. Harvard has said quite clearly, we don't believe in academic excellence and we don't care about anti-Semitism. We care about boxes checked. Now you say to me, Tony, you're making actually a bunch of allegations that somehow Claudine Gay is not competent because she's a black woman. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I am saying that Claudine Gay happens to be a black woman. And Claudine Gay is not competent. I have met white Jewish men who are not competent. I have met Asian men who are not competent. I have met Hispanic men who are not competent. And on the other side, I have met Asian men and women, Hispanic men and women, black men and women, Jewish men and women, white Christian men and women who are totally competent. I have met gay men and women who are not competent, and I have met gay men and women who are. There are two sides of the bell curve, and it's time for everybody to grow up. Harvard has let the cat out of the bag. What are we talking about? They said they promoted her. They said they gave her the job because she's a black woman. It's the only thing that matters. The fact that she didn't even do her own damn work, the fact that she's a liar and a fraud is meaningless to us, Boxes got checked. Don't you understand? Boxes got checked. If we don't check boxes, how do we know we're decent? And then they fell to the floor in a puddle of their own tears saying, please don't call me racist. I just want to be loved and invited to cool parties. Oh, my God. Now, it should be noted that uh, not only did she crib and lie and steal, but in her entire academic career, she's got 11 peer-reviewed journal papers. 11 is all you need to be a president at Harvard University? 11? Guys, I never graduated college. But I wasn't trying to run a university. First, I could. I'd be awesome. Secondly, 11 to run Harvard? This woman is intellectually bereft. But that's okay. Harvard is ethically bereft. 
She is not about the academia. She is not about some great Harvard history. She is about proof of DEI. Diversity, equity, and inclusion being the only reason she is there. That's why she got the job, and that's why she's keeping the job. As Noah Rothman points out in National Review, her ascension to being president was the, quote, shortest selection process in almost 70 years. Maybe it shouldn't have been so short. And maybe it was so short because they only said, this is the kind of applicant we're going to have, and we're not going to look too hard over here because it's important we show all the students and all the, the, the Harvard alumni, look how woke we are and look how important we are and look how much we care about these things, etc. DEI is outright bigotry that is built on the concepts of hate. In this case, Harvard's hate for the students and Harvard's hate for its own history. Intellectual heft, academic rigor, these things could not be allowed to get in the way of somebody's ascension. Their characteristics being more important than their mind. That's what DEI does. It does not celebrate the mind. It celebrates the characteristics overall, over everything. As a matter of fact, to even mention the mind is a sign of the bigotry. You see how backwards it all is. The Ivy Leagues have shown you what trash they are. A Harvard graduate today is a meaningless graduate. As a matter of fact, any school that promotes DEI, that engages promotions based on DEI, or supports those policies, can't be a school that's worthy of going to. Can't be a school worthy of the diploma. No. No, this is an ugly day for the Ivies. It's an ugly day for the university system. And for those students who actually been studying and have been told that that's what matters, now you know it doesn't. Except it does. And we have to be the ones who teach the lesson to Harvard and others. I'll get to that story in the days ahead. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
Dow up 106, the NASDAQ up 38. Oil prices are down once again. That's kind of nutty. That it just it just it keeps going down. And then of course, there's this little weird announcement. Hey, hello and welcome to the view. Joy is out this week. You know why? She finally got COVID. Yeah. She's she three years, four years in. It finally got her. She can stop bragging now. That's yeah. right. That's right. Her special blood That's type. Right. Yes. That's right. But filling in is the fabulous, wonderful, amazing event Nicole Brown. Well, first of all, I like Yvette Nicole Brown. Uh, she was on Community, and she's fantastic. Uh, uh, secondly, um, if you had COVID now, how would you know? You get tested? You Are people still doing that? It's a cold. Look, I've had a cold for a week. It's been a, it's been an ugly cough. You know what I did? I've been going to work. Now, if you tell me, hey, I'm not going to go to work, uh, you know, someone might get sick, so it's it's best that I don't. Well, I can appreciate that. But get tested? Can I ask why? At this stage of the game, why in the world are are we doing this? That it seems. That seems very virtue signaling. And why would you say she finally got COVID? Like, how dare she not get COVID? I don't know. It almost sounds like the ladies of The View are like have relief about this. Good, now that she's got it, we, we can prove that COVID's really bad. People are. People are something else. Let's break down the border issues. That's up next. I'm Tony Katz. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Conversation continues. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. We said we were going to do it. I took that trip down to the border. I've got another one that I'll be going on hopefully sooner rather than later, but it might actually be uh, at this stage of the game uh, next spring or, or summer. But the border issues are massive, and they don't get enough coverage. But for some people, they're bigger than others. And certainly in the state of Texas, they deal with more border issues than in the state of Indiana or in the state of Nebraska, Genevieve Collins is the state director of Americans for Prosperity in Texas. And and state directors of of this group are dealing with policy issues in the state. Well, Texas uh, immigration is a policy issue. It just 
it, it has to be defined as such. There's no way to kind of separate it out. Just like we have seen that immigration is an American issue, not a Texas issue. Certainly policy-wise, it's not like you're discussing policies and, and pick your state uh, that are all immigration-focused or have a lot of immigration focus. That's happening more, of course, in border states. So in understanding the work that Genevieve Collins does, I started with a basic question. Immigration for a, a group like yours that focuses on you know economic freedom and, and economic issues, exactly how much is immigration a part of your daily portfolio? It's a massive portion of our portfolio. Border security and the economy are the number one and number two issues in the state of Texas. And you know what I've been trying to broadcast around the rest of the country is that because of the Biden administration's failed policies around immigration, now every state is a border state and making sure that every state is actually holding their members of Congress accountable for doing nothing. And there seems to be just a consistent uh, desire for Congress to do nothing. And now because Texas has such large terrain, you're right. It is a massive issue. It's the it's the number one issue for Republican primary voters and then the economy. And we're going to see that play out bigly uh, over the next year. Let's talk about the people who want to do nothing or are doing nothing, because it would seem odd to me that a member of Congress in Texas who deals with this on the daily, certainly their constituents deal with it on the daily, uh, do zero. Is it that you bring up the subject and they don't respond or you bring up the subject and they don't care about responding? Well, so there's two things happening here in Texas with our members of Congress. We do have a lot of leadership coming from different members of Congress here in Texas trying to solve the problem, whether that's Democrat Congressman Henry Cuellar, as well as Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez, they share a huge swath of the Rio Grande border. In addition, our Senator John Cornyn, they have all jointly written policy called the Bipartisan Border Solutions Act to begin solving some of the issues for Customs and Border Patrol, uh, solving some of our infrastructure and asylum seeking reforms. Uh, so there is stuff that's happening. But there's also Chip Roy has a bill. There's a lot of folks that are trying to do well because it's immediately affecting all of our communities. It's a public safety issue, not just a humanitarian crisis, uh, not just a drug crisis. But the problem is that outside of Texas, so many other members of Congress see it as an easier political football and they're able to score points with it rather than solve the issue. So it's easier to just let it continue to fester rather than solve. We often hear about this uh, even before October 7th when we talk about the Hamas attack on Israel. Uh, yeah. Palestinians as cause versus Palestinians as state. Uh, the, the idea that utilizing them as pawns to a rallying cry or a fundraising cry or a cry to violence is much more advantageous for those powers that be that want to continue to be powerful uh, than actually figuring out how a state could be created and could be run. Uh, you're arguing that there's the same type of power play happening in the federal government, in Congress. It doesn't matter how many elections we have so far. 
Absolutely. Tony, no one has solved the issue since the 80s. You know, it's not like fewer people are coming. In fact, more and more and more people are coming to, to the tune of over 2 million people that have single-handedly just been apprehended. Those aren't the folks that have gotten away from Customs and Border Patrol. These are the people that we've actually found, discovered, apprehended, processed. We can't even count the countless millions of people that have come across our borders illegally since the Biden administration. So yes, it is exactly the same process that you were just describing. It's easier to keep it an issue rather than to solve it because now I can fundraise off of it. I can you know, create ideological battlefields. I can do so much more as a member of Congress with the issue rather than solving it. And it's it's, a, it's at the detriment of the American people, it's at the detriment of the rule of law, and it's at the detriment of making sure that we have a nation with borders. Talking to Genevieve Collins, she is the state director of Americans for Prosperity. Uh, let's talk about the, 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 the reasons why we see people coming to the United States as we often discuss it. What's the draw? What, what is the in? If I were to engage culturally, all I'm told is that America is a hateful and bigoted and, and, and awful, uh, oppressive place. Yet you see people trying to get in the door constantly. As you talk to these members of Congress, or at least trying, as you talk to Border Patrol members, I was on the border. I think you were there uh, with me uh, on the border there at, at McAllen. Um, what, is, what is the number one draw right now for people trying to get into the U.S.? It's it's hope, you know. Only hope is the greater. Only hope is Jeff Bridges said this, uh, which is a strange person to quote for this statement. But hope is the only emotion that's greater than fear, and people are coming to this country because America is the shining beacon of hope. We have an economy that people can immediately go to work or sometimes go to work. Uh, we have we have opportunity. And it's hard to put a price tag on opportunity when your own country has none. And what we keep forgetting is that America is the land of the free. It's the land where opportunity exists and anyone can prosper. And those are three draws that are that are heartwarming. They're American. It's the American dream. It's the American ideal. And at any cost, someone will come here to flee for a better life because there's freedom, opportunity, and prosperity. So it, it's it's interesting that you didn't mention freebie. This is the conversation we hear a lot. And don't get me wrong, if we, if we were to engage politically, we'll hear the political left discuss how we have to give this and we have to give that and there has to be housing and there has to be this. But in terms of how you are hearing these people at the border, that didn't come up in your list. So... Is it Not that you forgot or is it that that's never the case? That's just talking point from uh, a, a political left point of view. It's the latter. People are happy to work. If they have made such a dangerous journey, they're not afraid of doing the hard work. They're not afraid of having a 2000 mile journey that is treacherous, remarkably dangerous, fraught with cartels, these people are, are unafraid of doing the hard work and people want to come here because their own economy, their own country has no opportunity, has no options, that they're fleeing a place of misery, of tyranny, of deprivation, that these folks, they will come solicit America 
for an opportunity to succeed, for a dream to be a part of the greatest country on earth. And so the left completely forgets that. And, you know, these folks, they're doing the jobs that a lot of people don't want to do, that most Americans don't want to. And they may not love it, but they are dang happy to be here, to have a work visa, to contribute, to own their own business, to have a family here uh, and be a part of the American dream. And the left hates that narrative. But that's well, the well, reality. Let's, let, let's take a, just a, a, a moment back. And, and certainly uh, the idea, I think sometimes people here do the jobs that Americans don't want to do. Uh, and they don't recognize that if we're talking about agriculture uh, alone, you have got a massive amount of job openings uh, and a very tiny number yeah. of Americans uh, applying for the, those jobs, using that as an example. But what if I said to you that the idea that people are coming for opportunity and not coming because they know that a left-leaning America is going to give them a handout, that that's a naive take, Genevieve. That is a naive point of view playing into talking points politically, and it should be opposed. How do you respond to that? I think that if anyone's trying to say that people want to work hard as being naive, then move to Texas. Texans know what hard work is. We deal with it every day. Um, and to say that someone who goes, traverses this incredible, arduous, painful, difficult journey just is coming here because they want a handout is really callous and very shallow. And I think that you're undermining the human dignity of somebody. And people see America as a place that res that respects human dignity and and human progress and the ability to work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There are countless examples time over and again and again how people have done that since 1776. And if I'm being a Pollyanna, then you know what? I'm sure happy to know that when I go to sleep at night, I know that I'm having I'm having uh, positive dreams because I'm dreaming of of an American Republic that is open to anyone that wants to be a part of a country and do hard work. And so that's the other part of it. The other side of this, uh, it, it, to the extent I'm, it is actually the other side, is that Texans don't seem opposed to the idea of immigration. Even when people are discussing shutting down the border and maybe possible reasons for shutting it down to get the system in play, it, 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 I, I did not experience in my time, McCallum, which admittedly was a short time. I have many more trips to take throughout uh, the, the Texas border. I did not encounter, whether it be my Uber driver or whether it be uh, restaurants, what have you, people saying we should shut the border. That didn't come up. Is Texas a believer that we should, that uh, Governor Greg Abbott should shut it down no matter what Biden says, let him fight you on it? I mean, Texans believe that we need border security fundamentally. Security is not the same as shutting down. Security is making sure that our communities are safe. That is the sole responsibility of the government is to make sure that they're protecting their people and their citizens. And when you got cartels coming over in droves, threatening the public safety of communities, bringing in death drugs like fentanyl, uh, we need to curtail a lot of that. That doesn't necessarily mean shut the border down, but it does mean secure the border. We need infrastructure. That can be a wall, that can be razor wire, that can be buoys. You see this federal government is now suing Greg Abbott 
for trying to secure our border that the federal government won't. You know, we want border security because border security and economic security are immediately tied. When you have border security, you can have better flow of trade. You can have more people economically uh, lifting themselves up. You can have more certainty from an economic standpoint when you know the border is secure. And under no circumstance do we want to have a porous border. That means we don't have a nation with defined boundaries. That's not what Texans want. We're very proud of Texas. You talk to any Texan, they'll tell you how great it is here, right? We True. wanna make sure that our, our, our country, but that's how Texas think of ourselves, that but our state, but also our country have rule of law. This is completely acceptable. These are not two you know, divergent concepts that we need border security, but we need the federal government to stand tall and say, no, we want people to come here but we want people to come here legally. We want people to come here safely and we want people to contribute to the American dream, have their version of the American dream. Genevieve, you talk about Henry Cuellar, the congressman, uh, who has been very open about the, the failures of the Biden administration on the border and the issues with the border. Is there uh, amongst Texans a bipartisan feel regarding border security? From members of Congress or even well, from, from the House. people, from the actual people, the residents, is is so, there a bipartisan feel on this? No, no, I, not from a legislative standpoint. We're in our so our Texas legislature meets every two years, and right now we are in our fourth special session because our Texas House didn't get all of their work done, and we're talking about border security and. The Republicans are fighting the Democrats and the Democrats are saying, you know, you're this is not how we need to do it. This we need to, you know, talk about it in a humanitarian way. So, no, there's not consensus, but there is consensus on there being a problem. There's not consensus on a solution. And that really, Tony, goes back to your original question. Right. Like, how come no one's really actually trying to solve the problem? It's because it's an inconvenient solution that very few people agree on how to do it. They don't they don't agree on how to do it or they don't want to agree because doing it is is the problem in and of itself. Bingo. Oh, that is depressing, Genevieve. That is, that is, that is not a way to end the conversation at all. I, I, I am. <laughs> I am disgusted, but just like all of you, not surprised in the slightest. Genevieve Collins, state director, Americans for Prosperity, state director in Texas. Appreciate you all part of Border Week. More coming up today, more coming up on uh, the border. This is the biggest problem in America, and we are going to make sure we cover every aspect of it. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
Smile Direct Club has gone bankrupt. I, I, I'm not joking. You know those people where you like you, you're like, hey, I want you to make my teeth straight, and you take a little mold, and then they send you the the, the liners. Yeah, they've they've gone under. They're like effective immediately. We're done. Um, they entered Chapter Eleven bankruptcy. Uh, what was it? Three months ago, and then uh, the other day they were like, thank you. Good night, goodbye. By the way, if you're on a payment plan with us, you still have to pay us in full. Later. Oh, yeah, that lifetime guarantee. We don't honor that anymore. Pay us. Bye now. What nuttiness. Uh, conceptually, I always like the idea. I think if you want to trust a, a service like this, you should be able to. And, and I think people have used it. And I certainly think people have gotten value out of it. But if you go bankrupt, if you go under, and now you tell me I still have to pay you? I don't understand how that works. I don't recognize where the value part of of that is. Or is it that you provided a service and now I have to make good on paying for the service? Is that it? Is it wait, hold on, wait a second. Does that make sense? Is that a is that a rational point of view? Yeah, I I, 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 I paid. And then and then you went out. So I don't get the customer service anymore. So isn't that a breach breach of contract? How come they can breach their side of the contract, but I still have to fulfill my side of the contract? No, now, now you see, no, 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 now I like it less. Now I like it less. I'm curious. I'm curious if people are going to pay or not, but Smile Direct Club is no more. So, you know, congratulations to all the local orthodontists. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. In all the conversations we have about the border, the one conversation we never seem to have is about economic impact. The economic impact of regarding immigration, the people we take in. But how about the economic impact of who we're not able to take in because we don't have a system that works? And the economic impact to all these communities across the border because we fail them. The economic impact across the country of spending and spending and spending and getting no value for it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you talking to Jorge Lima. He is the vice president of policy for Americans for Prosperity. As you know, we're doing border week, the whole week talking about aspects of the border presented by AmericansforProsperity.org. Jorge, good to have you here. And before that, you were with the Libre Initiative. You worked with the governor of Puerto Rico, a law degree over Georgetown. That's that's a bit of, of your pedigree. Um, if you were going to give the elevator pitch to what it is you do regarding immigration policy on immigration, what is the elevator pitch when someone says to you, 
what do we need? What do you tell them? I say that immigration is good for the country, but we do need a functioning system, one that it can be respected and actually meets the needs of the country. So let's talk about what it is we have right now that isn't meeting the needs of the country. What, if you were going to laundry list it, uh, one thing, two things, three things, your top three things that okay. we do in the United States that simply don't work. We've proven that it doesn't work. What are those things? So one, the system itself doesn't actually keep up with the times, right? It's an archaic system at the moment that was already decades old. So it doesn't meet the economic demands, the community needs of the country right now. So I think that's one of the reasons we're getting wrong. The second big thing we're getting wrong is we don't actually have enforcement at the border, right? Right now, because the system is so wrong, it seems that the border is the only way to get in. And we have not kept up with the needs of our enforcement officers at the border or the processing officers at the border just to understand what is actually happening and make sure that we can, again, keep America safe and keep the interests of America uh, top of mind. And then third, I would say that the government bureaucracy has been horrible in terms of actually processing whatever remnants of a system we currently have. So just being able to actually navigate the system is a disaster. So the system is old, the border is broken, and we have no idea how to actually process visas that we actually have. So now let's talk about where, where really one of the focuses is re- regarding the border, and that is economic impact. The idea of what is it that we're experiencing on both levels, the cost of our current levels of enforcement and the cost of non-enforcement. Now, normally in an economic conversation, we have to get into the cost of what happens if we don't have people coming into the country. I, of course, favor legal immigration in a great and, and grand way, a beneficiary of it, going back to my grandparents. Um, mm-hmm. But that's usually where we start. I, I think that maybe we want to start a little in a little bit of a different place. What is the economic impact of the policies that we have now? And what is uh, your vision, AFP's vision, a vision, if you will, of policies and how does that help that economic impact? Yeah, so right now the economic impact at the border is 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 pretty significant, meaning that we are we're getting it all wrong and it's actually pretty costly. So we are not uh, enforcing the law as we currently have it or doing it in a way that seems uh, aligned with what we have in terms of our system. And by and so when we do that, we have to understand that then we see more people start to come because they understand that our system is actually incentivizing them to do that, right? Like that is the way you get into the country now, much easier than than trying to get through one of the visa systems, trying to to navigate any sort of process that we currently have. And those costs are significant. We're seeing those costs at the border directly, right? So uh, the the time that our CBP folks at the border are focusing more on humanitarian efforts versus security efforts, like there's a cost to that. Um, and it's, it's our security costs, right? So we're not getting the kind of security that the country expects and demands. And then we're seeing the cost as we try to come up ad hoc with systems that are going to bring in the people who are at the border or deport them, right? And so there's also a cost to that. And we're just not doing it effectively or efficiently, right? It, we're not actually having a system that, that properly lets individuals coming to the border know whether or not they qualify and if not they should be you know go through the deportation process people who are 
than staying because our system doesn't know how to give them that answer. It's just completely delayed. We don't know how to actually get them in front of the judges or others who can process their system, their their request in a timely manner. Let me, all let costing me, us. Let me jump in on that, right? We, yeah. we know that we've got millions of people trying to get in front of, of a judge. And we have heard that the backlog there to actually seeing a judge is upwards of five years. So certainly as a policy that doesn't work, but doesn't this go to the idea, and we hear this a lot, that part of our policy issue is that we are engaged in this constant conversation about asylum uh, rather than a recognition of people being migrants who are moving for economic desires, as opposed to uh, an asylum seeker who is trying to come to the United States for an actual fear of, of, of their life. We are definitely talking more about asylum, and it's because of the failure of our actual immigration system. To the point you just made, a lot of folks think that the asylum process is the way into the country. And so it is, shouldn't be anyone surprised that the asylum system is being overwhelmed. And you are absolutely correct. There are people who are trying to come in through the asylum process who are who won't qualify and should not be thinking that asylum is the way in. But at the at the moment, we are not actually having a functioning system that allows individuals who are coming for economic reasons, which, by the way, the country wants them. We have a huge gap in terms of demands uh, from our from our business sector and economic sectors of the of labor demands that are not being met. And so as a country, we want more people to come and apply their skills and apply their talents here. But we're telling them that the only way to actually come in and do that is through the asylum to then work without the right work authorization and, and kind of live in the shadows. And that there's a cost to each of that process, not just to the country, but to the immigrants themselves. And so anyone who's advocating for this status quo is neither a friend to the immigrant or the country because this system just is failing on all fronts. Talking to Jorge Lima, Senior Vice President of Policy for Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org, talking about economic impact uh, of immigration. I agree regarding this conversation about asylum and how uh, the, the asylum push, and we see this from NGOs and others at the border, uh, creates a, a, a real issue for the United States, not only in, in terms of it preventing us from getting workers that employers would love to have and therefore creating solid relationships, uh, but uh, from the cost of actually enforcing what we have. If everybody's pushing for asylum, this is a massive drain on the economy. Do we have a number though? We talk about it mm -hmm. costs money, that this policy is costing us economically. Do we have a number to what that num to what this policy is costing us? I mean, there are a number of estimates out there, but I would say, and, and some folks are putting it in the hundreds of millions into the billions even, um, when you start looking at all of the consequences of this kind of failed system from the enforcement side, the security side, and then of course, the just the labor market and economic side, but all of that tears up to a cost to the country when we know that immigration is a net benefit, right? Immigration helps, the immigrant helps the country and over time, it's something that really continues to position the United States as the economic powerhouse that it is. And yet we're, we're almost like tripping over ourselves uh, to get there when we can do it in a much better way. You bring up asylum. Right now, the conversation is all about asylum because it's getting overwhelmed. What I would hope from our leaders is that the solution conversation shifts away from asylum. Because if all we're talking about is a debate about whether to shut down or expand it, asylum, you're missing the point. 
The big problem is our legal immigration system. And that's the one that needs to get fixed, needs to be expanded, and when it don't qualify, needs to be enforced. That is how you are fair to the immigrant. That is how you help build trust and confidence in the American people, that you have an immigration system that is takes their best interests at heart and is really here to help the country. So before before moving on, is there a dollar amount to how much we're wasting uh, every year uh, on this uh, uh, on this constant asylum push that's coming? Again, I, I don't have a, a one number, right? Because the numbers, it all depends on, are you looking at the cost of having a underground economy and labor market? Are you looking at the cost of the lives of the immigrants and how disruptive this process is? Are you looking at the cost of our border communities and now even our cities in the interior who are scrambling to determine what to do with these newcomers that are coming into their cities? All of that cost can add up. I would say you still see the benefit of when those individuals come and contribute. You'll, the, the other side of the debate is that there's still benefit. But to ignore that we're doing it at a cost uh, would be a, a really big miss. You really got to understand that we can do that more effectively so that the positive side is much larger than the current negative side. So the the very concept of you, you mentioned earlier, fairness uh, to, to the immigrants, I, I I have a, a giant issue with that argument because that argument is to is, is predicated on the idea that somehow the United States isn't fair. And what Americans are saying is, what about the fairness to us? What about the fairness to my kids? What about the fairness to the amount we're spending at, at the border as opposed to where we should be spending this money in other places? You often hear this conversation regarding veterans. Look at all that's given to people coming across the border illegally and look at veterans sleeping in their cars. So the fairness conversation to the migrant is one that, that seems uh, offensive at at the first, at the quick, as opposed to how do we ensure immigration that keeps Americans safe, that keeps Americans prosperous, and recognizes the value on the other side? I, I think you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought this up, Tony, because in immigration, and I think across many parts of our political debates, you are seeing that the, the fairness argument has almost been weaponized. And the whole point of the fairness argument is only to point fingers and to show somebody that they're losing at the cost of somebody else. We reject that. And so when I talk about fairness, what I'm talking about is quite simply equal treatment under the law, that the law is clear and that people understand where, where, what, how the law will apply to them and that we are applying that law equally. And so what are our visas and do you qualify? And if you do not qualify, then you should know. And if you are still here after you don't qualify, you should be deported. If you do qualify, then you should stay and you should understand what are your rights under the law. Right now, we don't have that. We don't have clarity of the law that allows people to understand what process they can they can undertake. How can they come in? Instead, to your point earlier, we say, OK, you somehow made it across the border in five years. Please come back and see a judge, uh, at which point maybe we'll give you a point of view on wh whether or not we think you should stay. It, and I'm oversimplifying here, but that that is not fair, right? The idea that nobody knows, the immigrant doesn't know, the American people don't know what the laws actually say and whether or not they're even being enforced. That is what I mean by fairness, right? Equal treatment under the law. If we're, the, the debate about whether who gets what service, who's struggling more, that just pins us once again against another, which I think, again, is a distraction and almost helps the status quo survive, definitely has in terms of immigration with no real progress for more than decades. 
And really what this system should be doing is helping Americans collaborate with immigrants because that's when we know we see the greater benefit, again, to the economy, to the country, to our communities, and to the immigrants themselves. But when you when you recommend policy and, and you guys come up with policy ideas, the policy idea is not to the idea that the United States should somehow suffer uh, from, from immigration. It is the idea that America can prosper from this Im- from from immigration and something that that I favor and I think history has indeed proven. So uh, be- before anything, is there your policies that that you discuss? And I want to get into some of them. Certainly engage the idea that there are some people who should not be allowed into the United States. Absolutely, people who want to come to the United States to do us harm should not be welcomed into the United States. Um, now, how do we determine that? I, I trust that we have the security information and, and, and the ability to search out individuals who are coming with bad intentions, whether those are the cartels, uh, folks that are smuggling drugs, right? folks who want to abuse of our systems. There are ways to determine that. Now, I think it's a, it's a disgrace to, to think about our immigration system solely as a charity effort. right? That is not what immigration is intended to do. That is not how immigration helps our country or the immigrants, because we're not here. It it isn't one big charity case. Now, there are certainly spaces for humanitarian aid. We believe that the asylum system should exist, but it should be, we should reinforce it and uphold what it was originally set to do and not the current status where it just is the only way that we're allowing new immigrants in. So talk to me about policy. Say to me, Tell me here at Americans for Prosperity, I'm talking to Jorge Lima, Senior Vice President of Americans for Prosperity for Policy. Here's what we're proposing. This is why, what we'd like to see Republicans and, yes, Democrats to get behind. Walk me through it. Well, we think, first of all, you got to look at the legal system. And I start there because that is, the, that is a way that you're going to relieve some of the pressure that's currently at the border. So I'm not just trying to single systems on top of border. I think they're both uniquely... Uh, destined together. And so you've got to look at our system and we would start by saying the current system just doesn't keep up with demand. And so how do we make sure that immigrants have a way to access a visa if they want to come work, if work is available here in the United States? And we can talk about how you make those visas go through the process to understand what the actual demand is and that there are are abilities for the employers to to understand and vet the individual as well as our security systems to vet the individual before they come in. But we are are ill prepared to actually provide the type of temporary visas or seasonal visas or even uh, longer term work visas that our economy demands. And the system needs to be updated. Right now, that system is largely family-based and family is important. We should relook at that and make sure that, again, that isn't the only way to come in because then we're just doing things by chance. We should have a more skills-based process um, and definitely one that at least balances it out with the way that we're looking at family reunification or family-based immigration. Those things need to be relooked. Now, we have to look at them in a way that, again, not only understands our demands as a country and as an economy, but also understands the processing side. Because what happens, we can design it to meet those demands and suddenly the bureaucracy takes over. And then again, we're stuck with huge backlogs we're huge, uh, stuck with huge bureaucratic requirements that just make it almost impossible to bring folks. And then guess what? You're stuck again by in, that, in a system that incentivizes folks to go outside of the system. But if we actually had a, a visa system that was easily accessible for people to come in and, and obtain the types of visas 
for them to contribute and our economy agreed that we needed that contribution, then you have to look at the border and say, well, how do we enforce what's happening? And if you are not qualifying for asylum, if you are showing up for economic reasons and don't have the visa, you will get deported. That is not the system we want. You should have come in through one of the legal channels that we have. We need to supply our enforcement security uh, teams with the right infrastructure, with the right technology and the right personnel in order to get that done. And I'm the first person, if you check the full interview over at TonyCats.com, very clear. When we talk about demand, we're, we're talking about the needs of the nation, not demands of people who want to get into the nation. The needs of the nation, our demands, that has got to be the front and center conversation. My thanks there to Jorge Lima from Americans for Prosperity. Border Week, we're covering it all week. We're talking about the border. We're talking about the wall, the economic impact, the policy issues, all of it. So we have an understanding of what it is we need to do or what it is we can do. And dear Lord, what it is they're not doing in D.C., which is, well, so dang much. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Nikki Haley will get the endorsement of New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu which certainly helps her as right now, when you take a look at the state of New Hampshire, she is in second place. That last poll putting her at 18%, Trump's at 46%. Can we be perfectly clear? And DeSantis down at 7%. He's in fourth place in New Hampshire, but he is truly betting an Iowa strategy. This is good for Nikki Haley. I just don't know if anybody cares about the endorsement of Chris Sununu. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. People bandied about Chris Sununu's name. As a guy who could run for president, maybe should run for president, uh, he's not running for president. He's going to back Nikki Haley. Now, Nikki Haley's strategy, depending on whatever happens in Iowa, is New Hampshire, South Carolina, and show massive strength heading into a Super Tuesday and trying to make her the default candidate. I've made the argument right here. Her path is a better one than, than, than Ron DeSantis. Her path is better because South Carolina is her home. And New Hampshire to South Carolina gives her strength in terms of a a one-two punch. She's got this opportunity. But really, until Iowa, when we see what Trump does, it's all just speculation. Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. 
Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Now, I'm going to throw something else out there that I normally don't throw out there. And that is, if you look at the CPI indexes, the raw indexes, in September at 307.78, that is the all-time high going back over 100 years. It's 307.05 right now. The core, which is seasonally adjusted raw data, is at an all-time high at 312.25. Never, ever been higher. The point here is, is that we annualize and we look at numbers at this point forward. But if you go back in the rearview mirror, inflation compounds, and it's that dynamic that the public is not very happy with. That idea that the inflation compounds is something we've been discussing. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. And the CPI cut number comes in inflation slowing to 3.1% because the consumer price index only increased 0.1, but the core increased 0.3. The inflation compounds, yet we're told that inflation is getting better, but we're still feeling it. So why is the market so absolutely a believer that the soft landing is in the future. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Let's start with this CPI. It's 0.1 up in November. It is 0.3 up, excluding food and energy prices, which I don't even know if you can do. Tell me what you think it means. Well, you know, I, I agree with Rick's assessment of the situation. I kind of laughed when I heard it this morning because, you know, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, which is the, you know, the annual year over year versus the monthly multiply by 12, or in his case, you know, three months multiply by 12. Yes, it looks like when you consider everything that we're still at this 3.1%, okay, it's not going as slow as we thought. It's up from last month, but it's kind of flat until you exclude food and energy. When you look at core inflation, it's still over 4%. That's not a good number still over 4%. People need to think about that because the target is below two. And so we're 100% above target. And that is not a good sign right now. And when you dig into the, the numbers, there's a lot more things to be worried about. And I, I'm guessing we're going to dig into the numbers, but there's a lot more to be worried about than the headline. We are. But, but before anything, just as a matter of just going back and making sure we're all on the same page, why do we exclude food and energy? They're called volatile. Why do we, they get excluded when looking at the numbers? Well, it's, it's not that they're getting excluded. It's just what would be the inflation without them? Because energy, for example, fluctuates wildly. I mean, let's look at fuel. Or no, let's look at gasoline. Gasoline. In August, it was up 10.6% for the month. This last month, it was down 6 That is extremely volatile. So when something is that volatile, you got to say, okay, let's remove that and also do an analysis. And that's what they mean by core. So now you take a look at the number itself. You take a look at the overall, and it says 0.1%, but it's, Three point, it's still 3.1%. That's based on, on 12 months. The consumer price index rose 
3.1% November, November from 12 months earlier. But that's down from October. Why shouldn't I look at that and say, ooh, we are now starting to get a slow slide downward? For two reasons. One is the monthly ticked back up. So that's concern number one, that the monthly in November is up from the monthly in October. But you got to remove energy. And energy fell dramatically. Gasoline, 6% in one month. If you look at fuel oil over 12 months, 25% drop. That is clouding the number. So the 3.1%, that's actually too low. You remove these volatile figures, and you're looking at a much higher number. And that's what we need to be concerned about, because fuel dropped, but not for a good reason. It's the reason we've spoken about over and over again. It's recession on the horizon. The economy has lower demand. OPEC is not cutting the production like they said they were going to. So when we take a look at this number and this fuel oil number being different than gasoline, gasoline being down 8.9%, we should, you, you, you would think that this means things are coming down and we should see a down overall, but we didn't see a down overall. And the reason, of course, as we've discussed, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, there's no demand on China to produce things, so they're not as thirsty. Uh, Europe is already in recession. We know that to be true. So the demand is less overall that should have driven other things down. Your point is it didn't drive other things down, and that's where a concern should be. What are the specific items that gave you concern this month? Well, transportation. You know, transportation was up 1.1% for the month, and you got to think about that. With fuel prices being down, that's an incredible increase because fuel is part of that. Because, you know, the airlines, when they provide you transportation services, they got to buy their fuel. So that's up. Medical expenses, up 0.6. You know, and I tell you, this is, this is the kicker, is used cars. We've been talking about used cars dropping and dropping and dropping. They're back up. This is, this is the announcement. Hello, we're inflation. We haven't gone away. That's what that says to me when I see 1.6% for the month. Yeah, so I'm looking at used cars and trucks up 1.6, just to give everybody an idea. From June, July, August, September, and October, it had gone down 0. 0.5, 1.3, 1.2, 2.5, 0. 0.8. It had gone down five months in a row, if you will. It showed a negative. The last time it was up was May. It was four, up 4.4. 4. Now it's up uh, 1.6. But I also noticed that new vehicle sales are down 0.1. So used cars went up, but new vehicles went down. This is part of the credit crunch conversation? Yes, it's that's exactly it. It's part of the credit crunch situation and also demand. If people aren't making as much money, and we know that wages are not keeping up with inflation. We know that to be a fact. The government keeps reporting it. If your wages are not keeping up with inflation and you need a car, you're going to buy a used car, not a new car. So the demand for used cars is telling us the household budget is not in as good a shape as it was. And also you don't have, as, have to have as good a credit to buy a used car as you do a new car. Let me talk about where, where the household credit is for, for a moment. Stepping away from the report, this was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. The math for buying a home no longer works. And the chart is from CBRE, uh, Gina Heeb with the story, H-E-E-B, Gina Heeb with the story over there at, uh, at the Wall Street Journal that an average monthly lease payment, right? You're, you're buying a, or you're renting a, an apartment, renting a house, is $2,184 a month. When in uh, the first quarter of 2021, it was 
So you you've gone up nearly three to four hundred dollars in in making a payment on a on a, on a lease on, on a on a an apartment. If in the third quarter of 2021 or fourth quarter of 2021, you were paying $2,000 for a mortgage average payment. Now you're paying $3,300. So this is, of course, the increase in interest rates that are, that are uh, affecting all of this. But this is massive to the idea of where people can spend their money and the, the, the very concept of house poor. <clears throat> You know, but it's more, it's more, it's more than inflation. Let me give you another piece of data. You're right. Interest rates cause increase in monthly payments, but what about closing costs? Closing costs were up 22% year over year, 22%. That equates to $5,900 more year over year in closing costs. These are the fact that the banks have to make their money somewhere. And they're not making money, as we saw in the housing or the mortgage, the banking crisis earlier this year. So it's tough to buy a home when you're $6,000 more out of pocket to buy a home. And you don't have it because your wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Now let's tie a bow on this. Give you two things here, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. The first is this short clip from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen saying that we're on a soft landing path. So do you, you've said you see a soft landing as the most likely outcome for the economy. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, in the sense that, um, to me, a soft landing is the economy continues to grow, the labor market remains strong, and inflation comes down. And I believe that's the path we're on. She believes we're on a path where the labor market remains strong, but the inflation comes down. That's going to be the soft landing. If you take a look at the CNBC Fed survey, they'll they'll tell you that people believe that the soft landing probability is up to 47%, up five points from October, and they think that the Fed will start cutting rates mid-year 2024. So I take a look at this consumer price index report. I say the inflation is still here, but the people on Wall Street and Secretary Yellen are all telling me that everything is super fine and dandy, Dr. Will, and that we are going to have the soft landing. As a matter of fact, Janet Yellen is going to get herself one of those nice, comfy down pillows and rest you there in the reeds like your Moses. Well, all I can say is she is much better at predicting the future than me, although her track record is terrible. We can go back and look at that. I don't think we have the time, but it is terrible. She has a terrible track record for forecasting the future. I don't predict the future, but I do know this. All those Wall Street people you just mentioned that are saying soft landing, if you dig into their details of their analysis, they say the labor market is getting in worse condition. That contradicts what she just said. So I don't think it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be soft or hard, but I do know this. Her forecasting record is terrible. Talk to me about the idea of, of the labor market. Uh, why would there be a feeling that it's about to get worse? Well, because we saw this in the report that we, you and I analyzed just last week, that what we're seeing is that the job openings are decreasing. The unemployment rate is fluctuating because it has to do with participation rate. The great resignation is not being reversed yet. And that what we're starting to see is a slowdown in the economy, as we see in these numbers right now in the CPI for fuel, slow down the economy, less people being hired, unemployment rate will go up. I heard on the same report you gave this morning that you played earlier, this clip, same interview that 
the forecast is that we may hit over 4% unemployment sometime in the middle of next month or next year. Now, we have not paid much attention to unemployment rates. And the reason we haven't paid much attention to them is because they don't seem to be as much of an indicator as as things like producer price index and what we're warehousing, what we're actually manufacturing, whether that is up or down, uh, how people are seeing uh, you know, the, 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 the future, they're being very, very wary. You're now telling me I should be paying attention to what that unemployment number is going to be? Yes, because we've seen a trend. We talked about this, I think it was on Thursday or Friday. There is now a trend that is coming. It, well, it's not coming, it's here. The trend is moving in the wrong direction. The number of people unemployed is, is you know, fluctuating. The number of people employed is not moving up as fast as it should be. The participation rate is not moving. We see this unemployment picture growing into next year. So the, if the labor force participation rate is not growing, you mean that more people are not getting into the workforce. They're saying, I may have lost my job. I might not be sure about my job, but that's just the way it is. And there are no other jobs to get. That's what you're arguing. There are no other jobs to get right now if you lose your job. No, no, there are plenty of jobs to get. There's 8.6 million openings right. at the moment. So I'm not what sure where you're at. People are saying, no, but people are saying they don't want to go into the workforce. And we that's a whole long discussion about daycare, um, quality of life, standard of living, accepting. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that go into that. But people aren't going back into the workforce. They've resigned during the great you know, COVID thing. They're just not coming back to work. That is a fact. So the unemployment rate going up has nothing to do with the fact that we have 8.7 million jobs that they could fill. There aren't more people going back to the workforce. They're fine with what they've got. They're going to wait this whole thing out. That's a, is, is, is that a conversation about the value of the dollar not being enough, that going back to work isn't worth it? Or is that a cultural conversation about why should I have to work at all? It's a cultural conversation. And I know we can't quantify that, and I'm sorry about that, but it's a cultural conversation. People that during the pandemic went home and stayed with their children and then when they had a chance to go to back to work, thought, you know, I'm going to stay at home. This is much better. I like this. I like being at home with my kids. So we've seen this cultural shift. And, you know, some of them are educating their kids at home because they don't want to send their kids to a public school. Some of them have decided they're going to accept a lower uh, standard of living as defined by the government, but a higher quality of living as defined by them. And that's what we've seen happening. In your view... In the view of economists, uh, 2024, um, the, you know, the, we talk about the, the, the survey, and maybe I should ask the question uh, a, a different way. Nothing about the numbers you've seen over the past few days, including today's Consumer Price Index report, tells you that everything is hunky-dory in 2024. No, it tells me the opposite. When I see fuel and gas prices and energy commodities dropping by dramatic numbers, that tells me demand is low. And we know it. China's in a recession. Germany's in its, like, what, fourth quarter now of a recession. We see a recession around the world. The demand is low. We cannot fight the tide. Will we? Soft, hard, no recession. I can't predict the future, but the rest of the world's in a recession already. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Find him on the X Twitter, Dr. Matt Will, W-I-L-L, Dr. Matt Will. On the Twitter Xbox right there. Always a pleasure, sir. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. 
Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Jack Smith wants the Supreme Court to rule. You tell us. Can we charge the former president of the United States? Is it possible to to engage in a prosecution even though he was president? Can we move forward? Why should we have to go appeal after appeal after appeal? The judge in the case already said that we can move forward in, in, in the prosecution. But now Trump doesn't like that answer. And Trump's going to, to take this. Uh, to an, an appellate court. Let's just skip the middleman because Trump's claiming that you can't even bring the case against him about alleged crimes that occurred when he was president. You can't, you can't bring this uh, uh, against him. And so now Jack Smith said, okay, we'll take it right to the Supreme Court. Smith asked the court to take the step of weighing in on, the presidential, on Trump's uh, presidential immunity claim. And so the Supreme Court said, yeah, sure. December 20th, 4 p.m., Trump and Trump team, you have to have your explanation to us. You have to have it to us. We'll, we'll rule on this, which, by the way, good. I have always argued that the big, one of the big mistakes the Supreme Court has made, amongst many, is that they never actually heard the testimony and ruled on some of the conversations, the lawsuits regarding the voting that was improper during 2020. They should have. That's their job. As Alito and Thomas said, if we're not ruling on this, what do we do here? This is exactly what we should be ruling on. So I'm glad they're going to rule on this. Because, I mean, this is this is the case, right? Can you actually prosecute a former president? I think you can. But the court will decide. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care. Raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time.